Let's get that nuclear cleansing going. Dylan Hunt, save us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I'm Mark Farinas, professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas-Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. Today, we go on a first date with La'an and the man whose middle name isn't discretion. Then it's another 70s Gene Roddenberry extravaganza with the Quester tapes. Finally, what we're fanning over this week. Jim Kirk can't seem to catch a break on Strange New Worlds as Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow is the second time we're seeing an alternate version of the Captain instead of his prime universe self. Lon is thrown back to the 21st century with Captain James Tiberius Kirk himself to prevent a Romulan plot to alter Federation history. Both are put to the test as they struggle to survive the harsh Canadian winter and hot dogs. Did Strange New Worlds do a time-traveling first-date rom-com that became a poignant take on an old time-travel dilemma? Yes. Yes, it did. And it did it well, spectacularly so. When I saw the previews for this episode, I was concerned. Oh no, we're getting Kirk again, but another old Kirk, just like in Quality of Mercy, last season's finale. But damn it, Jim, they pulled the bridge carpet out from under me. This and last week's episode, along with Lift Us Up Where Suffering Can't Reach Us, are my top contenders for favorite Strange New Worlds episode. This was truly, if nothing else, an entertaining hour of TV. I wasn't bored, for sure, but I wasn't sold on all of it either. La'an continues to solidify herself to me as a really great character who can stand toe-to-toe with the legendary Jim Kirk. I liked her a lot, and I'm glad she got an adventure all to herself. This is her episode from start to heartbreaking finish. It's a strong one, and I wondered or feared that when La'an confronted her ancestor, Khan! (laughs) They would be unable to resist her coming across the Botany Bay in space. But once again, the bridge carpet has been pulled out from under me with this episode, which is, I think, a testament to how strong the writer's room on this show is. Because of all the kill baby Hitler or just go back in time and kill Hitler stories I've seen, this is the best of them. It takes its cues from Sitting on the Edge of Forever, which is by far my favorite episode of any Star Trek, and I think is the bar to measure all time travel stories in Star Trek. But like in that episode, Lon's choice reveals her character, as Kirk's choice does in that classic episode. At first, I questioned having a condescendent as a main character before the show even aired. It was a nod in my head going, oh no, this can go sideways real fast as the prequel, right? But I love Christina Chong. And now giving her that name makes a world of sense to me. If it's just to get this new twist on that old time travel trope. I'm going to get into the time travel aspects of this episode a little bit later, but right now I want to say that I think that this was the best presentation of Jim Kirk since Shatner played him. That doesn't mean that I think Paul Wesley is the perfect person to play Kirk, but this was at least a Kirk free of what is now being called Kirk drift, right? Right. He wasn't a dumb action hero with zero regard for the rules he was presented as an incredibly charming competent and book smart individual 
and the antics were fun for the most part. I really believed the chemistry between Jim and La'an, and they played really, really well off of each other. So much mm-hmm. so that I, I was actually mad that the writers didn't do the adult thing and have them be intimate in the hotel room. It felt like a cop-out to me and not really realistic. And it also took agency away from La'an because that would have been her call to make there. Mm -hmm. Whereas later when they finally kiss, it's Jim's decision. Yeah, I can see that. I don't think last season's Balance of Terror redo finale gave Paul Wesley material to showcase his take on the role. But here, he's given a range of emotions and situations to play with. That charm that's part and parcel of the character comes through. Both you and I, Mark, we have talked ad nauseum about the Kirk Drift ideal of the character as a reckless, phaser-slinging womanizer. That he's all guts and no smarts. Well, he is guts. But he's also plenty smarts. He trusts his feelings, but is filled with self-doubt and introspection. So when people say Kirk is all guts, what they're really trying to say is he's all emotion. And he is. He's one of the most highly emotional Trek captains. He isn't afraid to show them. He doesn't push them down like Picard. He's a rarity among all the stoic 60s TV leads. So, yes, I'm glad he's book smart again. Oh, and they also got that Jim Kirk likes to eat. We also have to remember that it's canon that Jim Kirk has read Valley of the Dolls. Yes, the classics. But I, th- I th- Wesley got to play his take on the character's wit, charm, and-, and poking fun at people. Kirk liked to take the piss out of Spock and Bones at every opportunity, right? And we see that here with him and La'an. They sell that rom-com aspect of the episode really well. I just hope he gets some of that with Spock later on. I'm not giving up on that. But I think Kirk is in fine hands with Paul Wesley. He gets what makes the character tick beyond that Kirk version that's in pop culture. As for the plot of this one, though, Mm -hmm. um, I really felt that this was kind of more of the same in a lot of ways. It was essentially Picard season two condensed from 10 hours into one. Uh, It was much better, of course, in a number of other ways that we've already discussed and probably will continue to discuss. But it was the same basic premise. And it's also extremely similar to Secret Invasion in a lot of ways with those 9-11 trappings again, a conspiracy, a sleeper agent, a plan to commit mass casualties for a political aim. Yeah, it does have those elements that are, as we've discussed on this podcast many times, just ingrained into our popular fiction since 9-11. But I think I can forgive those For one reason, one reason alone, the character work in this episode is fantastic. Those are just trappings to make that part of the episode happen. Unlike season two of Picard, this was concise. And there was a choice for La'an to make at the end. There's no choice for Picard. There's no moral or ethical dilemma for Picard to rub up against. Yeah, when La'an confronts her ancestor, she's confronting somebody that means something to her and has had a huge effect on her life. Whereas when Picard saves the pilot Picard in the 21st century, he didn't even know she existed. She could have been anybody. And, you know, making her Picard was completely meaningless to the plot. Yeah, well, you know, you know, she was Picard because one, she had a British accent. (laughs) Two... 
she drank Earl Grey tea. You don't have a choice in the in the drinks that you like. That's why I like borscht. And you know, her falling for this version of Jim Kirk is something I really loved about this episode. This was probably the first time in her life that someone could reach out to her and she could reach out to them without her damn name getting in the way. So it's that personal connection and those those character moments that were completely absent in season two of Picard. Yeah. It also goes back to the point of serialization versus episodic. I think you can tell better stories episodically in one hour than you can stretching out a two-hour movie over 10 episodes. This is the perfect example of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little bit more cynical about the message that we received here. You know, you mentioned the parallel with City on the Edge of Forever. This scenario is very different because in City, they were trying to prevent a catastrophe, right? The Nazis were going to win the war if they didn't intercede. So they saved a lot of lives. Here, they're allowing a catastrophe because they're telling us that the Earth needs a nuclear cleansing somehow. And that, to me, is just a very weird outlook. And it flies to the face of Strange New World's pilot episode, which said, basically, blowing yourself up is a waste of time, right? He went down there to warn those aliens that, you know, look what Earth did. Look what a mess this was. Look how needless this was. You don't have to live through that. But this episode is kind of saying, no, you do need to live through that in order to get to the good stuff. I think the quandary here is, if you do go back in time, you kill Hitler as a, as a child or as a baby, who's to predict, is who's to say that someone else won't come in and do the same thing, right? Which one of Hitler's lieutenants might have made it even worse or whatever, right? Whatever that what if scenario plays out. I get your point. I don't really have strong feelings one way or the other about it. Because once again, I'm so focused on the personal decision that Lon makes, but I do feel it goes to that Roddenberry idea of two steps back and one step forward that we have seen in two pilots already. Sure. But we had a situation in them where people were making the best of what had happened to them, as opposed to causing what happened in order to get a result. And with her inaction, she is sort of allowing something to happen. But if you knew that you could have a no-money socialist utopia, and all you had to do was let a, a, a world war and nuclear cleansing happen, would you let it happen? Honestly? No. <laughs> I wouldn't, because you have to... I mean, it's a very utilitarian view, right? We're going to say it's okay to kill however million people died in this third world war to hopefully have something later that we hope will not descend into the same kind of thing as a moral basis utilitarianism doesn't work it's the moral philosophy that says killing a hundred thousand iraqis was worth it to bring them democracy or that genocide against native americans got us the united states yeah it's just too dispassionate and it doesn't take into account real suffering. So I don't only disagree with you on that, right? I, I think maybe this might address something that could have been done better in terms of the way it's sort of 
set up because Jim Kirk does question Laon about I do this, I go away. Maybe he should have also argued about like, but we'll still be letting this many people suffer in your world war to get that future. Is that worth it? Is that something like it should, it should have been voiced by a character. I think that might've yeah. helped you a little bit. Yeah. Right? Uh, addressing it in some way and, and trying to, uh, you know, puzzle over it in some way for at least a couple of lines might've made it go down easier for me. Yeah. Uh, it should have come out of Jim Kirk's mouth in the hotel scene before the bridge explodes. Right. So kind of South Asian again, but now he's Canadian, you know, Khan had an accent. It was a Mexican one, sure. <laughs> but it was an accent nevertheless, right? Yeah. And he ruled over the Asian continent. So I feel like there's still kind of some whitewashing going on here concerning that character. The writers don't seem to think that South Asians could muster the science to make someone like him, is what they're saying. It, it had to have started in the West. Yeah, there is a westernization whitewashing. Also, because, you know, uh, money and budget, Toronto's cheaper than going out to... Uh... <laughs> to Mumbai. Although now I want the episode to be like that, where Kirk and La'an are trying to get around Mumbai. That would be fantastic. Sure. Uh, now I want that episode instead. So let's talk about canon a bit. I've never been a fan of moving the eugenics war up in time. You know, Star Trek is clearly a parallel universe to ours. It's not our world. During the original series, the Soviet Union still existed, for heaven's sake. Yeah. And it's not as if the writers don't agree with me, because in Picard season two, we had a 2024 with technology and space missions that don't exist today. Yeah. So there's no real reason the eugenics wars couldn't happen in 1992 and be a wholly different war from World War Three. What bothers me most about canon violations is that they never favor the original series. Well, it seems like shows like Enterprise are sacrosanct. Yes. You know, and honestly, uh, Enterprise is the, probably the first one to start moving the timeline in terms of the eugenics wars, right? I think it was Voyager because they do go back to the 90s and that. Oh, and yeah. There's and there's nothing, nothing going on. And there's nothing going on. Yes. I totally, I totally spaced on that episode. I mean, you could always say that the eugenics wars was happening in Asia and yeah. Americans were involved in some way because, I mean, for the last couple of wars, has there been any effect on the way Americans live whatsoever? No, and we've lived with constant war for at least the last 20 years. Yes. Uh, and then we also lived through the Cold War. Uh, we're old. Uh <laughs> <laughs> the tail end of the Cold War. You know, I'm okay with the moving of the timeline. I, I get their logic, right? Uh, Akiva Goldsman was quoted, I think it's in Cinema Blend. Uh, this is a correction, because otherwise it's silly or Star Trek ceases to be in our universe. We want Star Trek to be an aspirational future. We want to be able to dream our way into the Federation as a Starfleet. I think that is the fun of it, in part. And so in order to keep Star Trek in our timeline, we continue to push dates forward. At a certain point, we won't be able to, but obviously, if you start saying the eugenics wars were in the 90s, we're kind of fucked for aspirational terms of the real world. I love the sentiment behind this. I love that, yes, Star Trek should be aspirational, and I. Eh, but it's also a fictional universe, and as you said, it's parallel. 
But you know what? I don't just don't give a shit about these tiny canon details of like when the eugenics wars happened, if there was a separate world war. Uh, you know, I, I think canon is fungible. I think canon is what you need it to be at the moment. Where what I think is more important to me is the canonical aspects of the characters, the ingrained aspects of the characters, right? Which is why I didn't groove to Paul Wesley's Kirk at first in Equality of Mercy, because he wasn't given a chance to show more of those qualities beyond beyond the dead serious qualities that Kirk displays in the original episode. I often feel like canon is not that important, but I also more and more starting to feel like canon could and should be treated like the way we treat any historical drama, for instance, that it should be a means to setting boundaries we adhere to in order to tell stories within it. You wouldn't put a telephone in a 19th century historical piece. You wouldn't move the date of the Crimean War. You would work within those boundaries to create interesting and unique stories. And moving around is sort of, I don't know, it, it does feel like a cop-out from time to time. I do think constraints in storytelling are a wonderful thing. It, it allows you to be more clever. And, you know, this, this is this is actually the argument that I've seen on Trek Twitter a lot, is that Star Trek is like a historical drama, right? Yeah. Except when it comes to the original series. Yeah, exactly. Because we can recreate the Enterprise D bridge exactly like it was in 1989. But for some odd reason, we can no longer recreate the 1966 bridge with that much accuracy. Yeah, the original series is always the one that is fungible. Everything else is much more solid. And I think that that probably does come down to what the writers are a fan of. Right. As opposed to what really makes sense. I think this is the first modern Trek to fully embrace the no money socialist utopia. Yeah. Because Discovery didn't really touch upon it. Picard went out of its way to reintroduce money in the first season. And then I remember online that Michael Chabon gave some reasoning for it that I just don't agree with. You know, he it was just trying to, you know, hand wave that it's some sort of frontier thing or whatever. And because, you know, there was also the call out of Rafi's living in a trailer, but this is the utopia future. Why is she living in a trailer? Why does Picard still have a chateau? So, you know, there's this, this incongruity in, in that. But I like that this show has said, no, it's no money, socialist utopia, right? Yeah. And even though... TOS is sort of fungible for these shows. It is really embracing more truly the spirit of the original and the next generation of this aspirational, hopeful future where we care about each other. We take care of another, one another. We, we don't have a bullshit system that oppresses people anymore. Last week, we said if we didn't like where Secret Invasion was going, we'd hold off on reviewing it until it was complete. Well, I think we can agree the second episode was somehow worse than the first. So we're going to talk about another of Roddenberry's failed pilots. This time, it's the Questor tapes. A secret international lab builds a robot according to the plans of a famous, currently missing scientist. When Questor is activated, he goes on the hunt for his creator 
with his human friend Jerry in tow. Together, the two search the globe for evidence of Questor's origins. Now, Ryan, if I had told you there was a lost Roddenberry property that he co-wrote with fellow Star Trek creator Gene L. Kuhn, how excited would you be? I would be stoked. This sounds like a recipe for an exciting, dramatic show. And then I watched it. (laughs) Well, Questor, which aired in 1974, is seriously a product of its time. The 1970s was an era of plotting science fiction films like Solaris and The Andromeda Strain, Silent Running, and Star Trek The Motion Picture. You know, that's not always a bad thing. A slow, thoughtful approach to storytelling can be good. And some of Questor falls into that category. It's certainly a film with something to say about humanity and pacifism. But, you know, gosh darn it. A lot of it doesn't work. And in fact, large swaths of its middle third are just tedious. I like slow, thoughtful science fiction. I think arguably the motion picture is probably the last of those 70s thoughtful movies before we went into the pew-pew take on the genre. Yeah, we're two people who are big, unapologetic motion picture fans. Unapologetically. And Silent Running, I love Silent Running. I love Solaris. But this is just, it's just boring. It's sterile. Even in something like Star Trek The Motion Picture, there was drama and conflict between the characters, but everyone here is just like, I I just, I, I don't care. Gene loves someone or something seeking their creator. His work is very much about questioning those above us or those godlike figures in our lives and the dogma that goes with it. Gene loved that theme. You know, and, and I get it. That's him questioning us, the audience, if there really is a need for a god. He even did it, tried to do it with Star Trek in, in one of the many earliest iterations of what would become the motion picture, where Kirk encounters an ancient space-traveling intelligence who claims to be God. And even sooner than that, because that was going to be an episode of Genesis 2. Yes, Robots Return. Gene just wasn't strong enough of a writer to really do that question any substantial justice. And the, the time he really gets close to it with Star Trek The Motion Picture, the screenplay is actually written by Harold Livingston. So, <laughs> you know, uh, and he had Gene L. Kuhn on this. And it's like, it just, it feels like it's missing Kuhn's sort of wit and humor and, and, and just sense of, well, sense of anything. Any kind of fucking feeling. I I wanted a feeling in this thing, and there's nothing to feel. I feel like Quester. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Gene Kuhn actually didn't live to see this go on the air. So he was probably in declining health when he wrote it. Yeah. Or Gene did one of his famous, he rewrote the whole thing before they filmed it. It's possible. The opening is horrendously bland. It's so sterile, just like the lab it takes place in. What exactly am I supposed to be investing in story-wise? Okay, there's a weird mannequin man, but there's no hook yet in these 10 minutes. BJ Honeycutt is Jerry Robinson, Mike Farrell, and all the other humans in the scene are just dull. There's no heat. There's no energy. I feel like there could have been a meaty argument between these guys that highlights those characters 
who am I supposed to root for as the lead here? BJ, the mannequin, the other guy, the other guy who looks like the other guy. I don't know. Yeah, I know you hated this opening sequence. Personally, I didn't. I like that it tossed the kind of voiceover world building that Genesis 2 and Planet Earth had and showed us this functioning lab of smart people. There wasn't a lot of techno bible or exposition. I especially really liked the part where Questor is designing himself. He starts out, as you said, as this featureless mannequin thing that moves in a very unsteady and kind of uncanny way. And he has this device that sears his features on, and it's really unsettling and effective. Honestly, I think that's where the pilot should have started, because there was when I was started to really get hooked, but that's like 15 minutes into the episode. Yeah. I think that Questor's themes are pretty solid gene-on-gene fare. Uh-huh. And we talked a few weeks ago about how Gene Kuhn had written one of the better anti-war stories with yeah. Aaron and Mercy. And a lot of that anti-war sentiment makes it into this film, along with the prime directive Kuhn also helped develop for Star Trek. Questor is an alien robot that cannot commit any violent acts and is made to guide humanity out of its infancy but without any direct interference. So he's got a prime directive of his own. It's a prime directive that's, um, you can help, but just do it covertly. (laughs) Yeah, I would be fascinated to see how that would have worked in a uh, production episode. What would have been the standard adventure for Questor if he can't actually get in the middle of things, but only can come in from the side and not be noticed? It's very much like Assignment Earth, really where you've got this guy who is never seen and blends in and just makes adjustments to history to make sure that things are on the right path. The concept here felt like I was being set up for a fugitive version with data, right? Yeah. But the fugitive, he got involved in other people's stories, helping them. And here, there's no sense that that's going to happen. You know, they're hunting for the creator. Great. He learns who he is. He learns what he needs to do. Great. Whatever, I guess that's setting us up for a series, just not in an engaging sort of way. The one thing I that I didn't groove with was it seemed like Questor has to help humanity through huge crises and problems. How do you do a show about solving the world's problems every week, right? To me, I would say you have to start with the smaller personal ones. How do you take this concept that's big and size it down yeah. so that you can tell a story? You can't tell a story about solving climate change in an episode. So you got to do something else. Like you got to help the guy who could possibly resolve this problem, right? You got to help him through his personal story or whatever it is so that he can get on with the work that could eventually help the world, right? That's how I would imagine a production series would be like. I think what's really, really missing from this pilot is a sense of what the production was going to be like. And if that middle third that I think we both agree was awful, if it had been Questor doing what Questor was going to do throughout the series so that we could all get a sense of his importance and his partner, Jerry, could see what Questor is capable of, then we would have had a strong pilot. Because, you know, in Where No Man Has Gone Before, we don't just spend the whole time setting up who Kirk and Spock are. We see them actually go on an adventure. We see them in the thick of it. 
We do. And we that's do. how we're introduced to him. And in this, all we see is that this quester guy needs to survive so that he can do the things that he's supposed to do. But we never get a sense at all of what he's supposed to do and how he's going to do it. Yes, that would have made this pilot stronger for me. I like the shows and pilots that just drop us into the middle of the situation. We have to learn as we go, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like we're no man. I don't like the roundup pilots because this is all just like set up mm -hmm. and no real payoff. It's almost kind of like some of the serialized shows today in TV, right? <laughs> yeah, very much so. And I think one of the biggest problems for me for the potential of a production series is the Jerry Robinson character, Mike Farrell's character. He doesn't seem like the one who could guide Quester into finding himself. It's like the emotionally reserved Picard teaching Data to find his humanity. It's got the same energy. And Gene's really good at creating these duos that are opposites of each other, yet work well together as a team, as if they complete each other. But Robinson is just as robotic as Quester. There's no tension between them. Like with Kirk and Spock, you mentioned Where No Man, that opening chess scene. I know what the character conflict and tensions are immediately. And maybe they needed an actor like Shatner for Foxworthy to play off of and, and, and vice versa. I had a different read on Farrell's character, but more that he's a Stephen Collins type. He's not supposed to be reserved. He just can't manage to get any of his emotions out. He's bland. Because Picard is reserved, but he's interesting. Not so with Decker. There are some good lines that, that Farrell has, for instance, when he says that he's never built anything before that has asked him for help. Yeah. And, you know, that hits me in the feels, but it doesn't work because he's just so dull. Yeah. But, you know, you wanted this intense foil for Questor, and this movie actually has it. It's John Vernon as Darrow. He's amazing. And he runs the Questor project, and he has this insane power to put troops down anywhere in the world at a moment's notice. And his scenes with Quester are electric. He wishes that he could have the cold rationality that Quester does, while Quester wishes that he could feel. And he also sees the good in Quester's mission to help humanity, but he's extremely wary of any alien force having an influence over us, as he should. And just when you think that you're going to get this awesome triumvirate of moralism versus skepticism versus raw intelligence, Darrow just sacrifices himself and he's gone. I was thinking that Darrow was being set up to be like the cop who chases down the fugitive or the reporter who's constantly chasing down Bruce Banner in the Incredible Hall. Yeah. And maybe if they did the, the law of conversion of characters and made Darrow and Robinson one character, that might have worked. But yeah, Robinson is dull. Stephen Collins as Decker is dull. I can't imagine if they had done the 70s show with Decker and Stephen Collins as Decker and he'd eventually have to take over from William Shatner as the captain of the ship. I think that would have just been like... It would have been terrible. It would have been terrible. Okay, so here's the strange thing about Gene. When he gets a good actor to play his lead men, Shatner, Cord, even Saxon, they're dynamic and interesting, right? It, they give the role more personality. But Gene has always, I would argue that Gene's always been obsessed with the dull 
hero. Jeffrey Hunter as Pike is just, there's no energy there, right? No. And he didn't even write him to have energy. And then if you look at the lieutenant, the lieutenant is is the same thing. I think the part about Kirk standing out from the other 60s stoic leads, because Jean was trying to create that with Pike and early Kirk, but I think Shatner brought more to it and you start writing to that and you start showing more colors of the character. Jonathan Frakes' original note for Ron Bear and I Play Riker was to play him like Gary Cooper, very stern, very serious. You got an actor like Jonathan Frakes who's a cut up. You want to make Riker more humorous. You know, you have a lead that's already that Gary Cooper type. So why would you have your secondary lead also be that? I think we can agree that Questar is basically Mr. Data. He's not a proto-Data, but he is Data in every single way, except it's Robert Foxworth instead of Brent Spiner playing him. You know, yes. Questor is sort of aloof and adorable, and his eyes are wide and his lips are in this constant state of pouting, like he's some kind of curious baby. And, you know, even his physical tics are like Data. I get a sense that Gene sat Spiner down with a copy of Questor and said, do that. You know, I'll, I, 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 I do agree that there is a proto-data here at play. I think the biggest difference for me between Foxworthy and Spiner is that Spiner gave data a little more personality than Foxworthy gives to, to Quester. But by the end, there's more to him. Yeah, he grows into the part. He starts off as this completely robotic thing, and then he's slowly sort of easing into something that's a little less that. But yeah, even this idea that these androids were built from some unknown alien whatever that were here to help humanity, some of that was supposed to originally be Data's backstory before they wrote Data Lore. Mm -hmm. That some of the early documentation on Data was is, is that no one knows who built him. He was found on a planet. They were unknown alien builders. They built him as a human for a purpose. And then, you know, none of that made it into the actual show. In a way, thank goodness, because we don't like predestination and destinies here. I don't. Unless you're writing a Greek tragedy, leave the goddamn destiny out of my science fiction, please. <laughs> Questar actually gives Data some of his more infamous moments in uh, Next Generation. We're talking about that awful middle third. Questar, for some reason, is fascinated with human mating because, you know, this is a Gene Roddenberry production and... There has to be some kind of juvenile fixation on sex. Yes, because Data and Questor are basically walking, talking dildos. I am a robot and I am programmed to be horny. And he tries to use this knowledge to seduce information out of oh what... Oh my God, yes. What him, yeah, I have to bring it up, about what him and Jerry believe is this internationally renowned prostitute. And then she turns out to not be a prostitute. And I don't know why they had to believe she was one in the first place. You know, she's just a lady with a secret lab in her wine cellar. It's so cringe, but it gives us the origin of the now famous fully functional line that Data uses in The Naked Now. If vital to an exchange of information, I am fully functional. Well, it's Gene. So he has a teenager's mentality when it comes to sex, as if he's just found Hustler magazine in his dad's dresser. Thank the great bird. Helena did not sleep with either Jerry Robinson or Quester. 
So, you know, it's like one of those things like Gene's view on women. It's like they have agency, but there's still these objectified things that the best way to get to them is through your penis. Yeah. It's the Kirk needs to sex the woman of the week to get her to not kill them all. Yeah. It's the magic penis theory in fiction. There's also another notable scene in The Next Generation that comes directly from Questor. That's the gambling scene in the Royale where Data reshapes the dice and wins a ton of money. Questor does exactly that in a London casino when him and Jerry are hard up for cash. Yes, yes, it is very much. in the dice, right? The Yeah, he, he reshapes the dice in his hands. All it needed was a Texan in a hat. I like that Questor tries to have some big ideas, but I'm not totally sure how to feel about the premise. You know, he's got these godlike abilities. He can see everything that's going on in the world from his little wine cellar lab. He can do something about it. And there's apparently been hundreds of him throughout history that have been doing the same thing. And just like a god, you have to question, well, if you've been here doing good, aren't you also responsible for all the bad you didn't prevent? Like every time there was a genocide, where were the questors to stop that from happening it's kind of a big hole in the premise that evil can still happen on that level and i think this goes back to the the, the story production problem right gene is trying to solve these big problems and what's needed here is smaller more intimate and personal ones it's the superman dilemma right superman can do everything he can be everywhere but people still die. People still get into accidents. He can't be everywhere all at once. Thinking too big kind of creates those holes in the premise. What would have been interesting is if the pilot set us up for that sort of moral quandary, right? That Quester is eventually going to have to choose whose lives to save, who has to die and who has to live. And based on logic, that could be interesting. Although, you know, like I'm kind of a little over an outside influence shaping history and, and changing events. Yeah, the problem with the ancient alien theory is that it takes agency away from human beings. Exactly, right? Who really wants to live in a world where people didn't build the pyramids? You mentioned with planet Earth that it was Roddenberry's whitest pilot so far. Well, I think this one's worse. Yeah. We've got about 30 seconds of James Shigeta. And other than that, there's zero color in this at okay, all. Okay, you know what? It's And it's such a waste. James Shigata is a fantastic, skilled, charismatic actor. He's leading man material. If you watch him in Flower Drum Song, where he's the lead, the romantic lead, there's heat, there's energy. He's got it. James Shigata should have been Jerry Robinson. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on that. Shigeta says that uh, Questor decided to take on fair complexion for his human form. And then Darrow basically says, in other words, he appears normal because white is just normal. Right. And I would say that for most of the world, it is not. No. And Questor is supposed to be an international agent, right? There's a lot of places in the world, in fact, the majority of it, where a white person not only sticks out like a sore thumb, but is actually seen as an agent of evil. So it makes no sense for Questor to be white. Maybe James Shigeta should have been Questor. I agree with you on all those points. But once again, for as progressive as Gene was, he is also a um, contributor to Western narrative fiction 
and the centering of white males as the savior. We call that Western chauvinism nowadays. Yes. I love Gene Roddenberry's work, but Jesus Christ, that man is just all sorts of different shades of horrible sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know after Spectre if I could watch Pretty Maids in a row because I hear that's where Gene really gets really his shades of discomfort really show. <laughs> We're not watching Pretty Maids all in a row. Thank God. I'm not going to put you through that. I'm not going to put our listeners through having to hear about it. It's There's no point in it. I don't want to watch it again. It's not a pilot and it's not even his original story. So there's no reason to. Overall, I would place Questor between Genesis 2 and Planet Earth. I think it's a good effort. This is another series that I would actually watch and see how it fared. It's a shame it didn't work out. Uh, with like a lot of Roddenberry things. Great concept. Fucking horrible execution. <laughs> Every once in a while, we like to tell you what we're gushing over in our segment called Fanning. So what are you fanning over, Mark? It's Grow Up. Did you know that, Ryan? I, I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. hoping it wasn't true, but it is. My kid is practically an adult now. But one of the perks of that is that she gets to watch shows that were too mature for her when they originally aired. And one that we've been binging together during her summer break, unfortunately, flew under a lot of people's radars. It's CW's cult hit series, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, written and produced by the brilliant Rachel Bloom. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a 62-hour-long musical extravaganza. It's about Rebecca Bunch, a woman who was working hard at a New York job, making dough, but it made her blue. One day she was crying a lot, and so she decided to move to West Covina, California. Basically, she's stalking her high school boyfriend, Josh, hoping getting back together with him will turn her completely screwy life around. To make sense of the world, she interprets it through song. There's at least two or three musical numbers per episode, and most of them are hilarious and just downright good songs. I'm a good, such a good, real good person. Let me hear you say it too. Say it, say it, or I'll kill your husband. I'll do it, I'll gut him like a fish. You're a good person. Oh, thank you. I'm a good, such a good, real good person. The kid knows a lot of them already because we've been playing the less racy ones for her for years. Under all the comedy is a really deep dive into what it's like to live with mental illness and how it affects you and those around you. The show can be downright poignant and even gut-wrenching at times. It's also unapologetically Jewish, which I love. Nights like these are filled with glee, noshing, dancing, singing, we, but we sing in a minor key to remember that we suffered. Being happy is selfish, remember that we suffered. You have no idea what pain is, remember that we and it stars actual Jewish actors, unlike, say, the marvelous Miss Maisel. It also stars Filipino-American actor Vincent Rodriguez III as Rebecca's sexy romantic obsession. And it features Lower Decks actor Eugene Cordero. The show pulled in less than a million viewers at its height, even though it was on a major network at the time. So there's a really good chance you've never seen it. And that's a shame. The show does wear a little thin in its last season, but I think it sticks the landing. If you like musical comedies, this show is not to be missed. And it's streaming in its entirety on Netflix. I enjoyed it when it was airing. I watched it briefly based on your recommendation. And, you know, hey, 
had a Philam actor as the romantic lead. That doesn't happen often in television. So, Ryan, what are you fanning over this week? This week, I'm fanning over based on a true story. The Peacock's answer to Hulu's only murderers in the building. Okay, I mean, it's a true crime dramedy, but it's far from a ripoff of that show. It has its own take on the true crime genre and people's obsession with it. Plus, it tackles rich assholes in L.A., becoming relevant as you get older, and serial killers. It's sexy as hell. There's lots of fucking. Uh, <laughs> Unlike this week's Strange New World. <laughs> but here's where the show really sets itself apart. The podcasting duo, a wife and husband played by Kaylee Coco and Chris Messina, figure out who the serial killer is and team up with him to do a podcast about how he's murdering these women in West L.A. Oh, my God. Tom Bateman plays the plumber serial killer. He is both oddly creepy and charming at the same time. I'm not going to spoil anything because there are a lot of surprising turns in the show. But what I like about this show is like its antecedent, only murderers in the building. It doesn't take itself so seriously. There's a lot of humor to it. There's a lot of drama to it. There's a lot of murder to it. So check it out. It's on Peacock the entire first season. It's only something like eight episodes. I binged it in a day or two. But yeah. I think it's a, it's a good compliment to only murderers in the building. That's it for this week. I am Ryan Riddle, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all her work at sockpuppet.us. And you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter. And I'm at Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter. Did you hear something you agreed with or disagreed with? Or just want to say hi? You can find the podcast on Twitter too, at Chip Full of Jerks. that is long rant about something about gene (laughs) (laughs) running something something gene's vision